Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrads.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, good morning. You doing all right? Hey, anybody make it to the concert on Friday night? Anybody there? Yeah, that was pretty fun. That was pretty cool. This is a great room to watch a concert in, by the way, because even though it's a lot, a, lot, a lot of seats, it's kind of intimate. So if you haven't signed up for one of the other concerts, uh, we'd love for you. We just kind of offer it as a gift to you. We don't, uh, we don't make a lot of money off or anything. It's just something we kind of able to host, and uh, it's really fun. And, uh, and that Christmas concert is going to be great. So anyway, sign up and have some fun and enjoy it. So uh, uh, Captain Kirk went to space this week. Did you know that? Did you guys see that? 90-year-old actor William Shatner, 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 went to space this week. Uh, for those of you too young, it was a, called Star Trek, it's an old TV show. It was hokey back then, too. It wasn't, anyway, but, um, but he went to space, and uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, and here, what I really thought was interesting, I saw some sound bites when he got back. Anybody see these? Anybody hear these? Yeah. Interesting, interesting. And so I'm going to paraphrase kind of what I thought he was saying there. Um, so it's interesting because he's talking to Jeff Bezos, who's the guy who paid for all of it. And, uh, and in the background, you hear all these other people yelling and screaming and laughing. He's having a great time. But he's having a very emotional moment trying to describe what just happened to him, uh, leaving the Earth's atmosphere and coming back on his 11-minute flight. So, uh, by the way, at 90, going into space, it's actually a pretty safe bet because 90, you don't have many other options to do on a Wednesday morning. Anyway, so, uh, uh, so he comes back, and so he's, um, he's talking about space. He's talking about blue, just this bank, blanket of blue that surrounds this little planet. And at one point, he says, you're out there, and you just break through just a matter of, of seconds. You just break through, and you're out in space, and you look one direction, it's just black. It's just nothing. It's black. And then you look and you see this little ball with this blanket of blue. And then he says something to the effect of, it feels like the black is death. It's nothingness. But the blue, inside the blue, the fragility of this little blue orb, there is life. And he was deeply moved. Did I describe it accurately for those who heard it? And so he deeply is deeply moved by the fragility of life and, and, and the precariousness of, of the earth and its, and its atmosphere and its position in the solar system and the nothingness beyond. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that the earth exists in this precarious position. A few miles one way or the other from the sun, it would be too hot or it would be too cold or I was thinking about just the precariousness of life on this planet. And then I was thinking about the precariousness of life inside of us, our spiritual journeys. It's so amazing that God calls us to a life, a life of joy and peace and, and so many things that he wants us to experience. And yet, it's only experienced, in, just as the earth can only exist really in this one spot in the universe, we only really experience that kind of life in one little narrow band. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about a narrow road or, or a narrow gate. There's just this one little, one little band in which we get to experience that life. And anything outside of that doesn't really work. 
I was talking to Cody about this. He goes, yeah, well, it's kind of like athletes. Athletes are always on a razor edge. Now that I think about it, I, I saw a guy, it's a video of a pro golfer who just went to play a local community course just to see how a golfer would do on, a, on the rest of us, where the rest of us would play. And he, and he said, well, I think I'll score about a five under. He said, I haven't played in a few days, so my game's probably not really sharp. I'm thinking, I haven't played in a few days? But a pro golfer is like on that edge, right? You ever see like a playoffs come and one team finishes their series early and the other team goes on for a few more games? These guys get rusty over a matter of like hours, <laughs> right? Because it's on a knife's edge. It's a razor's edge. And here's what occurred to me. If people pay thousands for coaches and they, and they eat and they, they train all leading up to whatever it is. And, and that performance is just in that narrow bandwidth of, of excellence. Why is it we think we can live an excellent spiritual life and just believe anything we want and do anything we want? Why isn't the most important thing, given the equal amount of attention as performance in a, in a sport or, or a musical performance, whatever, the reality is, is that we kind of are haphazard in our, in our attention to our spiritual journey. And we usually do fine with that until, until it hits the fan, until trouble comes our way. And we're fine. You're all over the map. You're doing good. Sometimes you're on the right track. A lot of times you're not on the right track. You cross over, go to the other side of the right track. And some of our spiritual lives are like water skiing. We're just on that side, and they're on that side, and they're on that side. But when trouble comes, you need to be. You need to practice being in this flow of God's intention for your life, in this kingdom living, in this relationship with God, on this narrow pathway. But it doesn't happen in trouble because we find ourselves up against adversarial conditions or people and we are defenseless because we don't even know how to get on that path. We don't know how to train ourselves for righteousness or for living on that path. So what happened to David in Psalm 27. He's in a tough spot. David had a lot of tough spots. Some of them he brought on himself. Some were because he had a crazy boss. Right? Some of you know that feeling. Uh, staff better not say Amen. Um, and in this, I think we can identify some things. So I'd like to read it for you. And uh, Psalm 27, the entire Psalm, and here we find himself in a tough spot, but he knows how to get back on the path. And he's, and he's, kind, of, he's kind of prompting himself, encouraging himself to stay on that right path and to trust God. So here's what it sounds like in, in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? By the way, pay special attention to verses one, four, eight, and 13. Okay. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh? When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask the Lord, that this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face 
Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. By the way, the word oppressors there could also be observers. In other words, people waiting to catch them, to messing up. Kind of sounds like the world we live in. Um, and do not turn over to the de- turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me without violence, uh, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. In this, I think he gives us some great instruction. There's four passages there that I, I want us to look at specifically, but to kind of get a hold of this whole chapter, I kind of want to break it down into, into three things that he talks to us about. One is, first one is the battle. Life's just a battle. That's not news to anybody. Life is a battle. You're either coming out of a battle, heading into a battle, or you're in a battle. It's just always something. There's always something, as a famous comedian once said, it's always something, right? And the reality is that's not news to us, but what do we do in the midst of it? The very first thing he does in verse one is he says, if life's a battle, I want it to be very clear whose uniform I'm wearing, what flag I'm flying, whose side I'm fighting on. And so at the very beginning of this whole discussion about how to walk through uh, difficult times, troubled times, he begins with this. Um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He's, he's just saying this. He's not, it's not a perfunctory, okay, this is a religious thing. I better put God in here. It, he's saying, this is how I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight on God's side with God's help, and I'm committing to that. That is a non-negotiable. That's not something I'm going to have to decide. I may have to reaffirm it on a regular basis, but it's decided once for all. I am doing life on God's side. There is no other side that's appealing. There's no other side that offers uh, what I, I, I think I need. I need God. And so he starts off with this statement of faith. The Lord is my light and my salvation and my stronghold. So light is about one when it feels dark, God will lift me up. When I need salvation, by the way, one of the biggest problems we have in life uh, is that we have kind of functional saviors. Even if we say, God is my light, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and that's my salvation. But oftentimes on on another level, a more real level, we have functional saviors. My money will save me. Now you wouldn't say that. You might not even acknowledge that consciously, but you live that way. By the way, have you ever read about all the rich people in China that disappear? Have you seen this? Just do a little research. In China, you get rich, you're going to get disappeared because you're in opposition to the government at some point. And, and, and which is interesting to me because we, we tend to believe that if you have enough money, you're going to be okay, you're going to be fine because that's what our capitalist society tells us. But in that society, you get rich, you're a target. I, I just, if you are putting your hopes, your salvation, and your money, it may not work out so great, Right? Um, well, I'm putting my, my hopes and my dreams and my career because eh, that company could go bankrupt, right? Technology come along and wipe out whatever it is you do, right? The reality is there is no other real savior. And we not only need to mentally say that God is my savior, he is my salvation, but to live that way so that when trouble comes, we don't look to our money to save us. We don't look to our careers or even our friendships or our family. We look first and foremost to God. That's what he's saying. That is where my strength is going to come from, my relationship with God. Um, 
He said, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And of whom shall I be afraid? By the way, the, the second part of this, and whom shall I fear and whom shall I be afraid of, is a good thing because we'll talk about that next. So first, we plant our flag. This is the team I'm on. I'm on God's team. All right? This, and, and he's on mine. And, and we're going we're gonna to do this battle, this life battle together. And then we need to, if we're feeling we're in trouble or there is trouble, then we need to identify what the issue is because he's already identified it, by the way. If I'm on team God, uh, then why am I afraid? <laughs> so one of the things we do, he articulates what he's afraid of. He's afraid of people. There are people after him. And for good reason in some cases, and, or a good reason that he's afraid. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, if I'm on team God, why do I need to be afraid? And so what he does, he identifies, yes, these are my opponents. And he talks about them. He talks about enemies, armies, people who want to devour him like a, like a wild animal. All these things he sees. But at the end of the day, if I'm on team God... If I'm in a relationship with God, I'm living this life in relationship, I'm following Jesus, then why am I living in fear? Those are incompatible, okay? And so I identify, what is I'm afraid? What am I really afraid of? What's the real issue here? I don't know if you've ever had this, but I've been in times where it just felt heavy. Life just felt heavy. Do you know what I'm saying? I went back to Midwest and, and uh, uh, many years ago and went for a jog. And, uh, and I'd forgotten how humid it was there in the summer. It was like trying to breathe underwater. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, this is killing me. And it's just heavy. The air was heavy. I was heavy. Not as heavy as now, but let's talk about it. <laughs> Sometimes we walk through life and there's just a spiritual heaviness. And we don't even identify it. We get so used to it. The cares of this world. But yet I'm on team Jesus. And if I'm on team Jesus, why am I carrying all that stuff? And so sometimes I need to sit down with God and begin to clarify, what is it that's really heavy here? What's bugging me? Is there some bitterness that I shouldn't be carrying around? Is there some anger? Is there some irrational fear or some real fear that I haven't asked God's help for and turned it over to me? What is? Whom should I be afraid of? What is the real deal here? What's really going on? And then in verse 3, he comes back and again affirms this. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then I will be confident because I'm on God's team. I've decided once and for all, I'm going to do life with God. Now, why does he say this? So the first six verses of this, this chapter, he's kind of doing a lot of a good kind of proclamation about how he intends to walk out this thing. So there, there's, a, there's a theology that says, and it's a false theology that says that if I just claim it, God will give it to me. And, and so I'm just going to claim that I'm going to have uh, more money or I'm going to have two cars. I'm going to... That's not what David's doing here. There's a difference between a hope and uh, uh, I just hope against hope that this will happen or thinking that I can manipulate God. God, I need two Cadillacs, so you got you to gotta show up for me. God didn't give a rip about your Cadillac. But what if God has promised you something? Do you then have the ability? So here's what happens when we get some kind of heresy. Well, you can't just, you know, God is sovereign. You can't manipulate God. But, 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 let, yeah, that's true. But let's not throw the truth out with the bathwater, okay? Here is the truth. God has made us some promises uh, that I'll always be with you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be closer than a brother. Things that are promises, not hope against hope, not false theology, bad theology, true promises. Here's what David is doing. David is proclaiming for his own benefit, God hasn't forgotten, for his own benefit, this is the truth about God based on his character and his promises. And therefore, he claims those things, he proclaims those things, and in so doing, he lifts his own spirits. He keeps his chin up because he remembers whose team I'm on. 
Sometimes we're going through really difficult times. You've got to proclaim the truth of God's promises just to yourself, if nobody else. Just to be reminded, I'm not in this alone. I'm not doing this by myself. God and I are together in this thing because he promised, and in his character, I never see failure. I never see uh, um, lies. He tells the truth. And so we begin with the battle. And how do we deal with the battle? We plant our flag, plant God's flag, and say, this is the team I'm on. This is how I'm going to walk. Whatever comes, this is how I'm going to walk through it, okay? And so we predetermine how we're going to do that. Now, the idea that there's a battle is not news to any of us. The powerful part is verse 1, where he said, the Lord is my light and my salvation and my stronghold. He is, my, he is the one who lifts my spirits. He is the one who will save me from the mess I'm in. And he's the one who protects me from those without. That's what he's saying. So then we move to the second part, which is in, cha- in verse 4 of this chapter. And he says the one thing. There used to be a cowboy movie about there's just one thing you need to know in life. One thing. Anybody remember that movie? It's like, what was it called? City Slickers. City Slickers. Just one thing. And if you're too young, don't go back and watch it. It's not worth it. But just take my word for it. There's an illustration in there. It says, there's just one thing in life you need to know, and that's for you to figure out. Well, here's what David's saying. If, if this path I described of living a life that God intended you to live, instead of wandering all over the place looking for all kinds of things, this one right here, this is the one, and it, it is a narrow one indeed, but it's in this space spiritually that you live the life you're supposed to live and the one you wanted that is filled with happiness and joy and peace and all that. Right? If, if indeed there's only one thing you needed to do to do that, don't you want to know what the one thing is? That's what David is saying. He says, all the stuff I've done, all the stuff I've been through, I've realized there's one thing that keeps me on that path. There is one thing that keeps me in that zone, that peace, love, joy, confidence zone. So he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So he's asking for a job at the church. (laughs) No, he's not. The Levites lived at the temple. They worked in the temple. That's not what he's talking about at all. He is talking about what happens um, symbolically at, when you go to the temple, happening every day. In his, it, when you go to the temple in, in his day, or you go to, to the worship, you go and, and you, you make sacrifices, you make sure that you're clean and pure before God, and there is this incredible sense that you and God are together. There's nothing between you and God. You're not carrying around any secrets. Not doing there, you and God are together. And he's saying, I want to dwell in that space. He's not talking about a, a, a geographical location. He's talking about, I want to be in that space where God and I are together. That's the one thing in life. That's the thing. That's a magnetic force that pulls you back. Whenever you're tempted to go off, it is that wanting to be in right relationship with God. When I was uh, 18, it was like 20 years ago or so, <laughs> uh, I went with my parents to the Holy Land. And um, my dad was a pastor and um, loved scripture and loved the Lord. And I found it interesting that the whole time we were in Israel, my dad was kind of weepy, kind of crying a lot. My dad was a very kind, soft-hearted toward his family and so on, but, but he wasn't a weepy guy. And I found that he was just so deeply moved by um, being in proximity to where Jesus had been. He was deeply moved by that. Now, many years later, when I went back, and and I've been a few times, and by the way, I think we're taking another trip in next spring, I believe. When is it? April? 
And uh, we have a few spots. I think we have some spots left. I don't know. Uh, we don't make any money on this. Connie and I don't. Church doesn't. We just do it because we love people to go there and, and experience. And, and there's one place that we always go on our, on our, um, our journey there. And it's just outside uh, the wall. And it's a place where they've dug down to the, the first century road. And you can stand in this location. And you can be assured that somewhere along in front of these gates, it's not that far, that Jesus walked. And so you're almost assured of stepping on a stone that Jesus probably stepped on, right? And it's very, it's very interesting and moving. But I'd only make dad when I went back uh, later uh, in, in, uh, on subsequent trips. I, I wasn't moved the same way. That one spot kind of gets me, i got to be honest with you. But much of it, it doesn't move me. But, but I found that after I went to that trip and subsequent trips, that when I come home and I think of the old city in Jerusalem, I... It's, I can't explain it. I'm not saying it's supernatural. I'm not even saying it's real, okay? I'm just saying it's real in my life that when I think about the old city in Jerusalem, I think of peace. Now, that's ironic given that it is the most conflicted, most conflict-laden place on the planet. <laughs> the three major religions of the world want to fight over it. Eth ethnic groups are fighting over it. There's tension all over the place. There's machine guns everywhere, and yet I find that when I'm in the old city and when I remember being in the old city, I just feel peace. I'm not saying it's biblically accurate. I'm not saying, I'm just telling you what I feel. What David is thinking about in this passage is what he feels when he is in communion with God, when he is in, in conversation with God, when he is in right relationship with God. He's saying, that's where I want to live. I don't want to ever live out there on my own, trying to struggle and climb to the top. I never want to be out there kind of doing it my way because I know God's got a better way. I want to be right here on this path that leads to heaven, on this path that brings hope and peace and joy and love. One of the things that I think we have to learn in our lives is that we need to admit that, that one thing, that staying on the path, is something we really struggle with. Even when we get glimpses of it, we can't stay there very long, it seems. You might hear a, a, hear a great song at church, and, and you just kind of get a glimpse of what it would be like to be walking in tight relationship with, with your Creator. But we can't stay there very long. So how do, we, how do we come to grips with this? Well, let's read the next part. It may dwell in the house of the Lord. That's what he's talking about, walking in that path. And then to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Here is the critical thing. Here is the part that we need to latch on to if we're to live in this, this zone or this, this traveling companionship with God. Beauty. I don't know. When I say the word beauty, I don't know what you think about. I don't know if you think of um, a person you know or you think of a great work of art. Um, you think of a geographical location, that'd probably be mine. Um, I mean, right after I think of my wife, then... then uh, and this thing about God's beauty, the problem is that so many people have tried to live out some religious structure, theory, uh, by keeping the rules or by learning some new truth. But the real point of true religion is to know God. It's to know God. And the way that, or what happens as we come to know God is we 
begin to understand just as Shatner is looking back on this beautiful little blue ball that when you're inside of it, it's full of junk and stuff and craziness. But from the outside, it's incredibly beautiful. When we come to know God, we begin to realize how incredibly beautiful his perfection is. How beautiful it is to have someone whose intention toward you is completely pure. Someone who will never ever lie, who will never ever become something that catches you off guard, who is someone that loves you in a way that you've never been loved before, but at the same time is completely just and never winks and nods and misdeeds. And when we come to know God, we begin to understand that that perfection is beauty. And beauty changes us. Tim Keller talks about a professor whose book he read, and, and um, not a religious writing or anything, uh, just talking about great beauty. And her take on this was that when you're in the presence of, of, of a masterpiece, of great work of art, something of great beauty, anything of great beauty, that it does several things. First of all, it makes you want to share it with someone. Because it's the joy of this beauty is not complete till you show someone else. So it creates community. You're going to understand the applications as we go along here, right? It creates community because you want, hey, have you, lived, you ever see something beautiful? Hey, you ever have a great meal? Hey, you want to, you, you just want to invite people, you want to share it because the joy is not just in the beholding, but in the sharing of that with others. Uh, the second thing she talks about is when you see a thing of, of, of great beauty, uh, it, it, it kind of gives you hope. We live in a world that's lacking hope. Part of the reason we lack hope is most people don't believe they're here for a reason. If you believe in a purely secular worldview and you've adopted a purely secular worldview, why in the world are you here? Not just here in the church, but here. And what does it matter what you do while you're here? It doesn't. You see, any, any concept of good and evil, if we're just an accident, it doesn't make any sense at all. Might makes right. That makes more sense. The survival of the fittest makes more sense. And yet... Beauty. How does beauty fit in to a purely secular evolution of, of humanity? You look at beauty, it doesn't do any good. You can't eat that painting. Right? Matter of fact, some things we find incredibly beautiful are extremely dangerous. Like snow. Mountaintops. They're beautiful. They will kill you. <laughs> I've been to Everest. They will kill you in a heartbeat. Why is it beautiful? See, here's what her point is, and not from a religious viewpoint for a second. She says, beauty reminds us that there must be meaning. She doesn't attribute to anything. She just says it's evidence that there is meaning in the world. And so when we see beauty, we receive hope because there must be some purpose. And she also says when you look at something beautiful, it kind of lowers your selfishness level. Your self-absorption goes down a little bit because when you're in the presence of beauty, you stop saying, look at me because there's something much more beautiful. <laughs> you say, look at that. And suddenly it's not about you, it's about the beauty. I wonder if that'll preach, any of that. Community, hope, selflessness. Huh. So David says the way to stay on this this razor edge of, of God's love and joy is to look at God and to observe his beauty, to see the face of God. Let me give you some ways real quickly that we can do that. One is to seek to know him experientially. We need to know him with our mind. I'll talk about that in a moment through reading his word, but experiencing God. You ever been to a worship service and a song played and you just went, ooh, I kind of felt something there. 
I mean, even Baptists can feel. Yeah. <laughs> Shot at a few Baptists in the room just for fun. Some of our elders are Baptists. Unfeeling bunch of... No, I'm kidding. It's not true. There is this sense, and that is the right word, sense, that comes with knowing God, or at least it should. In, in the modern world, since the Enlightenment, we've kind of come to a place where we just think if we believe the right things about God, we're good to go. And it's important to have good theology. Good theology is extremely important. You can't base everything on feelings, okay? Um, but the reality is we were never meant to just have belief about God. We were meant to experience God. You see, he didn't just create our minds, he created our hearts as well and our bodies. That's why in worship, raising your hand, uh, kind of moving a little bit to me, it's not a bad thing because he saved you all of you, your mind, your heart, your body. He saved all of you. And some of our Christian experience exists only from about here up. I have all the right theology. Yeah, but has he ever touched your heart? I grew up in a tradition that was much more about this in many ways. And, and, and they, kind of, they would talk about someone who had a real touch from God. I think there are times, especially in troubled times, where we need to spend time praying and talking to God and worshiping God to the point where we can actually... See, the Bible says the taste of the Lord and see that He is good. It's a sensory kind of thing. How does it work? I don't know. It just seems like when I spend more time with God, it seems to happen more often. Have you ever had a moment where you connected with God and you knew that you knew in your knower that God was there with you? David is saying, knowing is not enough. I need to know God. And by the way, the way it comes is through praise. Acknowledging God's beauty. See, we go to praise. We're really good at praise when it comes to um, petitioning God. God, I need this. You know, the divine vending machine. We're good at that. God, I need this. I need this. But that's not knowing God. We're, we're even good. When we're pretty good when we say Thanksgiving. God, thank you for this and this and this and this. We're pretty good at that. Some of us are even okay at confessing. God, here's the truth. <laughs> right? But when was the last time you spent 30 minutes in praising God? Talking about God's attributes. God doesn't need to know that. He's pretty aware of his attributes. He has not forgotten. You need to know that. It's in praising God. It's in looking at his beauty. He says, I want to gaze at his beauty. A gaze is not a quick look for information and go back. Oh yeah, okay, good, we're good. No, no, it's looking to study, to enjoy. My daughter, Chelsea, is pregnant. And, uh, and by the way, couples, when, don't say we're pregnant because guys, you're not. She is. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just silly. Don't, just don't do that. It's just embarrassing. This proves you flunk biology 101. So my daughter is pregnant, and at one point when this little baby girl is born, she is going to be able to recognize when her eyesight comes around, and she will recognize mommy. The first face she recognizes and lights up will not be mine. It will not be her dad's. Thank goodness, poor kid. <laughs> it will be mom's. And when she sees mom's face, first of all, that's where she gets fed. Second of all, that's the one she knows loves her and will take care of her. And when she's with mom, she's going to be okay. That'll preach. You see, when we seek God's face, we seek the beauty of his character, the beauty of who he is, and the comfort that comes from knowing that this is my heavenly father. 
When we lock eyes, we guys say, well, you can't see God physically, but you can see God. In almost every page of this book, you can see God. You can understand his character. You can know who he is. You can know his intent for you. If you find yourself going through trouble, and you want to get in that flow of being who God wants you to be, start with praise. Don't start with petition. Don't start with confession. Because you don't need to earn God's favor. You get around to confession. That's about your character development. But about being connected with God is about praise. And you begin, and so David says, begin to praise. All right, I'm running out of time. I got so much stuff here for you that's so good. Um, let's go to verse, let's go to verse, uh, verse 8. Well, let me start, let me give you verse 7 real quick. In, the, in, in, in verses 1 through 6, there's a lot of confidence. David has a lot of confidence. I'm going to do this. God's going to do this. I'm going to be this. God's going to do this. In verse 7, we see a change of tone because whenever you're in God's presence, when there's the presence of incredible beauty, of God's beauty, you begin to kind of see your own flaws. You begin to realize that you're kind of unworthy to be here, okay? You kind of, and he begins to look at God and he begins to, and you just feel a change in his tone. He just seems to be like, okay, hear, hear my voice when I call, Lord, be merciful to me. And answer. you're not quite so bold now. You're not quite so, you know, he's beginning to realize. Here's one of the great things though. When we're in God's presence, we do feel humbled and we realize we're unworthy. But here's what, I've seen the Mona Lisa. It's kind of small. Um, but I can't figure out how she watches me where I go. And I can't decide if she's smiling or not. By the way, if you do a little history, art history, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, I've also seen, uh, let's see, I've seen the Sistine Chapel, hurt my neck, it's way high. Um, I've, uh, I've seen uh, David, uh, Michelangelo's David, right? Hands are too big, so is the head. Um, there's a reason for that, by the way, uh, if you do a little research. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know what was great? Is not in one of those places, not one of those uh, places to see those, did they ever ask me if I had taken an art history class? I didn't have to qualify. I didn't have to admit that I thought little folk figures carved out of wood were kind of just as intriguing maybe in some ways. You see, I didn't come to see beauty on my merit. I came to see beauty because it was beautiful. And we don't go to God because we deserve the chance to do that. We don't go to God because we've earned it. We go to God because that's who he is and he loves us and accepts us. And so when we should be intimidated in his presence and we should be, it's okay because we've been invited anyway. Even though I don't fully grasp everything that was painted to make the eyes work and, and that he understood that our eyes, when we look away, it looks different than when we look directly at something. That's how it looks like. She's smiling. She's not smiling. I didn't know any of that when I saw it. I didn't even know what size it was. I was quite shocked. It wasn't very big, but I could still go see the beauty. And then later, maybe we want to understand more about it. And sometimes we go to see God, we understand his beauty, and then we want to learn about why is it that he's that way? Don't let your unworthiness stop you from experiencing God's beauty. So there's the battle, there's the beauty that sustains us, and in the end, there is the blessing. So let me read verses um, 8 and then verse 13 for you uh, from this passage. Here's what it says in verse 8. Um, my heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, will I seek. This is an interesting thing. His heart says, I need more than just a head knowledge. And then his head and his will says, okay. It's his heart that calls for seeking God's face. I'm not enough. The information I have is not enough. I need a relationship. And then he chooses, volitionally chooses with his mind, with his will, I will do that thing. I will put myself in a place to be in God's presence every day. 
And then here is the payoff, and it's found in, in verse 13. And, and, and it's the blessing. There's the battle, the beauty, and then the blessing. And in verse 13, it, which was the passage I was going to talk about to begin with, and in verse 13, it says this, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Despite all the battle, despite all the ugliness he'd seen, despite all the stuff, he was still confident because he knew God's character and God's promises. And in verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You don't become a great tennis player, golfer overnight. You don't become a great Christian overnight. You, it takes time. It takes time spent with God. But that time waiting is not, is not God's not paying attention. It's him growing you, developing you, helping you to know him better to develop the character of whatever trouble might come in the future, or even triumphs, which sometimes are even more dangerous. But here is the passage I really want to talk about. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So here's my personal little testimony. I think it's an age thing. I don't know. Maybe I've just been at this a long time. I feel less and less comfortable in the world I'm living in. I have to be honest. I look around and I see things in our society that make me extremely uncomfortable. I see a level of division. I see the coarseness of discourse. I see so many things that I'm less and less comfortable with every day. Maybe I was too comfortable with it before. Maybe that's part of the problem. But even as I find myself less and less comfortable in the world I'm living in, I find myself more and more comfortable in the presence of God. I'm not bragging to you. It should have happened a long time ago. Finally getting around to it. I'm a little slow. But I find myself in the, in the turmoil that seems to surround us, the tumult of our times, that when I am with God, when I am experiencing God's presence, I can't manipulate, I can't make it happen. All I know is I just set up time and I spend time with God and I read his word and I pray and he shows up. Not the same every time, but he shows up. And when I walk away, I'm much more at peace. And I'm finding that I'm so much more comfortable in that space. And, in that, and I'm not in denial about the world I live in. World I live in. And I haven't given up. I'm not fatalistic. The battle's not over. And yet I am finding that I'm more comfortable here. And I'd much rather spend more time here with God than out there trying to solve the world's problems that I can't really solve anyway. You see, it's only the power derived as I'm here that I have anything to give out here. It's only in the, in the, in the constructs, in the, in the thinking that I learn here that I have to offer anything to anybody else anywhere else. As Christians, if we don't, we don't get this right, if we don't exist in this space, we don't have anything for anybody outside of this space. So whether you're David being chased by crazy people or you're a Christian feeling alienated from whatever, this is for you, right here. This place and relationship with God. David was doing it by intuition and maybe by the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I get to do it by the promises of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to guarantee that God loves us that much. He died so that you and I could be forgiven, so that we could have a relationship with that God. And he was resurrected so that we would know that no matter what stands in front of us, there is an eternity awaiting us with God in that space. And today, if you find yourself in trouble, get your praise on, get some time with God, start talking to him about his character.
If you're not in trouble, get some time with God. Be thankful. <laughs> Tell him you're thankful you're not in trouble right now. But do you want to know him better so you're ready when it comes? Because life is trouble. It's a battle. But this space is available. This is where we need to live. This is how we thrive. This is how we make this journey. This is how we actually lead others to help this journey. It's in the beauty of our Savior, the beauty of our Creator, and a relationship with that beauty on a regular basis. That's where we live. That's how we live. That's how we have our life, our breath, and our being. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that this isn't all there is. No matter what happens in in this world, Lord God, I know that you have a different view and a different perspective and different intention and an outcome that I can't see yet. Lord God, no matter what happens that I am confused by or troubled by, no matter what kind of injustice I see or experience, no matter how much I struggle with my own appetites or short-sightedness, I know that you are there and you are waiting and you will lead me and that your beauty will eclipse any ugliness in my life and in my world. And so, Lord God, help us to live. Help us to commit ourselves to living and being in such a relationship with you that your beauty shines bright in our minds and our hearts and from our lives every single day. Lord, we, like David, need you. And Lord, we thank you for being available to us. Now, let us step into that relationship daily. And we ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you so much for being here. And if you need prayer, there'll be some folks down front. Have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time. 